you were like me, you probably grew up singing patriotic songs. I remember even in school, we wouldn't start a day without saying the Pledge of Allegiance and singing a patriotic song. And one of those songs that we would sing almost every week was, My Country Tis of Thee. The last phrase in that song is, Let Freedom Ring. And we've probably sung that growing up uh, more times than we could count. Let freedom ring. We live in a country that values freedom. And whether we always realize it or not, freedom is very high on our society's list of importance. If you were to prioritize what Americans value most in life, freedom would rank pretty high on that list. In fact, one of the monuments that characterizes our country uh, just as much as any other is probably the Liberty Bell. If you've ever been to visit the Liberty Bell, you may know that there is a scripture that's inscribed on that monument. The scripture that was chosen to be put on Liberty Bell, this monument that represents our country, is Leviticus 25.10. It says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. When Americans were looking for a verse of scripture, they wanted to put on a monument that was going to send a powerful message to anyone who visited our country that shows a verse that talked about freedom. Freedom is very important to our country. And for good reason. There are many blessings that come with the freedom we receive. There have been several people uh, throughout history who have fought hard for the freedom we now enjoy. In fact, several of you in this auditorium have spent time fighting to preserve that freedom. You may even have a friend or a relative that's doing that very thing now. Serving our country. Preserving freedom. And there are blessings that come with that. We're thankful for those sacrifices. In fact, we wouldn't be able to be here assembling freely to worship God without... We wouldn't be able to talk to other people freely about God without the freedom that we enjoy. And so... Celebrate freedom. A day that's set aside to celebrate our independence... If you were to walk up to an average person, either tonight show, or if you go, if you were to talk to the street and say, "Are you free?" they would probably look at you and say, "Well, what kind of question is that? Do you know what day it is? Fourth of July, Declaration of Independence? Is any of that ringing a bell? We live in a free country. Of course, I'm free. Our entire country is free. And as we think about freedom tonight. We're grateful for our physical freedom, but tonight I'd like for us to look at a deeper level of freedom. And when we think about that question being posed to our country, are we free, the answer would have to be yes and no, if we're completely honest with ourselves. Yes, we live in a country that's free, but when we think about spiritual freedom, we look at so many in our country, long way to go before our country achieves spiritual freedom. Are we truly free? That's the question I want us to ask ourselves tonight. For just a few minutes, I'd like for us to flip over to John chapter 8. In the 8th chapter of John, Jesus about that spiritual level of freedom. Now, in this chapter, Jesus is addressing sort of a mixed group of people. He's talked earlier in the chapter to Pharisees who were seeking to outwit him, who were seeking to trap him in words who didn't believe him. But he also addresses those people beginning to believe in him. The seeds of faith were beginning to grow. They were beginning to believe what he said. 
And so as we come to verse 31, Jesus is addressing those people who are beginning to believe. And look at what he says in page 948 of your pew Bibles. We read, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You see, here Jesus is talking about a deeper level of freedom. He's talking about spiritual freedom. I think it's interesting that the people he's addressing here were very proud of their heritage. When you see Jesus address the Jews, they were very proud of being Abraham's descendants, and for good reason. And they make that remark that they've never been enslaved to anyone. And I think that's interesting because when we read through the Old Testament, we see quite a few years where the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, were enslaved by the Egyptians. And we've probably all heard the story of Moses coming through, setting those Israelites free. Just go back with me, if you will, to Egypt before the Exodus. Was it pretty obvious who was a slave and who wasn't in the land of Egypt? If you were to take a walk through the pyramids and the sand and look around, you would probably be able to pick out who was an Israelite and who wasn't. The Israelites were those slaves who looked tired, who were working hard, making bricks. They probably weren't as well-nourished as the Egyptians. They probably didn't look quite as healthy. And the taskmasters were easy to pick out. They were the ones giving the orders. They were the ones who were well-fed, well-rested. And they had whips. And they were commanding the slaves to do whatever they said. You see, it's easy to tell when someone's in physical slavery. It would be easy to tell that the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. But see, Jesus here is addressing a different context, and it's not so easy to tell who's a slave. He is addressing a group of people who are Abraham's descendants. Not only that, but among that group are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the leaders. And it's not so easy to tell who's a slave and who's not. And Jesus is You're looking for someone who's following the truth. The truth is what sets people free. You're not looking for a physical taskmaster. You're looking for someone who's submitting themselves to, to sin, submitting themselves to Satan through that sin. Jesus addresses a whole new level of freedom. Sometimes we forget, because of the benefit of hindsight, how respected the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have been during the time of the New Testament. You see, we look at the text through 21st century glasses and we know uh, what practices uh, that Jesus talks about the Pharisees doing to be seen by men. We know their motivation for wanting to put Jesus on the cross. Forget that these were the respect about the law. They went to one of the scribes, one of the Pharisees. These were people with very, they were very highly respected. And so uh, throughout the New Testament, when Jesus the Pharisees of hypocrisy, sometimes I think we forget what a shock that would have been to the crowd around him. That would have sent shockwaves through the Jewish community. He's calling out those people who are our leaders. And so we ask ourselves, why were the Jews, and specifically tonight I want us to look at why the Pharisees were enslaved to sin. What was it that was keeping the Pharisees in slavery and submission to sin? I think we find a pretty good answer a few chapters over. If you would turn with me to John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12, we read what I am convinced are, are two of the saddest verses in the New Testament. Look with me at John chapter 12, verse 43. That's John writes, Nevertheless, speaking of Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. I think this gives us a pretty good idea why those Pharisees, even those who were beginning to believe in Jesus, stayed enslaved to sin. Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Isn't it interesting that the teachers of the law, the people who were supposed to know God's Word better than anyone else, would care more about what other people thought than what God thought? That they would take the law so seriously, but they would take the Lord so lightly. That they would hold such a high value on the traditions that honor God, but they would do so in a way that they could be seen by people, that they could be seen by men. And while I think about the fact that the Pharisees wanted so much I realize sometimes I have a lot more in common with the Pharisees than I like to admit. Sometimes it's easy for us to enjoy, to even long for the praise of men. What a sad situation that even some of the rulers were beginning to believe what Jesus said, but they couldn't fulfill God's will. They couldn't confess their belief and continue in their journey of faith. They were stopped because they cared so much about what other people thought. You remember earlier in the book of John, chapter 9, the man who was born blind, Jesus healed him. And because Jesus healed him and that man believed in Jesus, he was sent away, cast out of the synagogues. In fact, if you were to believe in Jesus, since the Jews considered that blasphemy, you probably would have been put out of the synagogue. Can you imagine a worse fate for a teacher of the law, for a Pharisee, than to be kicked out of the synagogue? The place of teaching the law, the place of learning? That was their home. They didn't want to risk it. They cared more about what men thought than what God thought. And I want us to ask ourselves that same question tonight for just a few minutes. Which do we value more? What God thinks or what men think? Now, on paper, that answer is pretty easy to come up with. But as I was talking to another minister last week, he told me an interesting story. He said that last summer he had led a group of men through a leadership class. And in that leadership class, they had talked about traits of a good leader and traits of an ineffective leader. And he said at the end of the class, the big review session, to wrap up, he drew a big line down the center of the chalkboard. And on one side, he put, what are the traits of a good leader? And boy, they just popped out with answers like that. They all knew what the traits of a good leader were. He said, okay, what about the traits of an ineffective leader? And they knew what those traits were, and they popped them out real quick. And so he looked back at them and he said, now, answer this honestly. Is there anything on this board that you didn't know before you walked into this classroom? He said there was a pause. They looked at all the traits of a good leader. They looked at all the traits of a bad leader. And they said, no, we knew all of those before we walked in. You see, the point wasn't that it was new information. The point was the application of those principles was what was challenging. The problem wasn't in learning. They knew the information. It was putting that information into their lives. And I just want to warn you tonight, this won't be a complicated lesson for us. This probably won't be something you didn't know before you came through these doors. But I'm convinced that the principle is so challenging that we can never let up reminding ourselves to look for the praise of God rather than the praise of men. And so I want us to look at two sides of the same coin tonight. I want us to ask a couple of different questions. 
first of all, I want us to see that we're slaves to sin when we fear people's rejections more than we fear God's commands. When we're more afraid of people rejecting us than we are of following what God tells us to do, we are becoming enslaved to sin. And then secondly, the flip side of that, we are slaves to sin when we value people's approval more than God's acceptance. And we're going to look at a few examples, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of how that took place. When we think about the first aspect of caring more about what men think than what God thinks, when we think about fearing the rejection of people more than the commandments of God, we're reminded that we don't like rejection. All of us, at some level, are afraid of rejection. Whether it was asking someone out on a date or maybe asking someone to marry you, applying for a job, applying for a certain university, asking for a raise, we get those butterflies in our stomach because we're afraid of being rejected. We don't like to be rejected. It doesn't feel good. In fact, as I was thinking about this concept and thinking about the time of year that it is where you have a lot of graduates that are looking for work, I thought it might be interesting to share this with you. Uh, If you've ever received a rejection letter from an application for a job, then you'll appreciate this. Uh, You may have already seen or read this, but this was a young man who had received a rejection letter after he'd applied for a job, and so he'd received a few of those. He decided to send one back. I just want you to listen. I think this is a good way to handle rejection. It begins this way. Dear Miss Ezell, thank you for your letter of April 17th. After careful consideration, I regret to inform you I am unable to accept your refusal to offer me employment with your firm. This year, I have been particularly fortunate in number of rejection letters. With such a varied and promising field of candidates, accept all refusals. Despite your company's outstanding qualifications and previous experience in rejecting applicants, I find that your rejection does not meet with my needs at this time. Therefore, I will initiate employment with your firm immediately following graduation. I look forward to seeing you then. Best of luck in rejecting future candidates. Sincerely, Matt Taylor. See, not all of us handle rejection that well. And sometimes, if we're not careful, it's that fear of rejection that can creep into our spiritual lives. And it can keep us from fulfilling God's will. We might not bring up the subject of God because we're afraid of rejection. Maybe we're afraid to study with someone because we're afraid of rejection. What if they don't agree with me? What if they don't see the truth that is evident in the Bible? What if they reject it? How would I feel? I'd like for us to look at someone in the Old Testament who was very afraid of what the people thought, was afraid of the people's rejection. His name is Saul, and we read about him in the book of 1 Samuel. And incidentally, when you ask any of our young children who've been going to Pew Packers uh, what the book of 1 Samuel is about, they can all say, Saul. So we saw that tonight. But when we think about the life of Saul in 1 Samuel, we see a few things, and we'll just touch on these points as we think about Saul's life. A common thread that runs through his life is the fear of what people would think. When Saul is first being announced king, when Samuel calls all the tribes together in 1 Samuel 10, and he announces Saul king, Saul was nowhere to be found. In fact, they asked the Lord where Saul was, and they saw that he was hidden among the equipment, among the the baggage, the things that that the tribes had carried with him. Saul was hiding. Even then, as he began his reign, we see that he was afraid. I'd like for us to focus on 1 Samuel 13 and 15. If you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel 13. We see that Samuel has not been reigning for very long. Only a couple of years. And now he is, he is at war 
with, uh, with the Philistines. He's engaged in a military combat with them. And so as we see that they are fighting, Saul gathers the people at Gilgal. And in verse 7, we see that the people followed Saul, but they followed him trembling. They were afraid. And so what was supposed to happen at that point was Saul was supposed to wait seven days and then Samuel, the last of the judges, the one designated to make the guilt offerings and the peace offerings, was going to come and he was going to offer some sacrifices up to God. But look at what happens. Verse 8, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Look down at verse 11. And see, when Samuel confronts Saul, listen to what Saul's response is. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. Look at the first part of his response. Because I saw the people were scattering. It didn't matter the agreement that Saul and Samuel understood. It didn't matter that Saul knew Samuel was the one designated to make that offering. When he saw the people scattering, he became nervous. But interestingly enough, in a couple of chapters, we see him do the same thing again. If you would flip over a page or two to 1 Samuel 15. When we look at 1 Samuel 15, we see that God had given Saul and the Israelites very specific instructions. He was supposed to go into them, the people, but destroy all of their possessions. But we see that Saul doesn't do exactly that. Skip down to verse 8 in 1 Samuel 15. We read that Saul captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And we're not willing to destroy them utterly. You see, Saul decided that because the people really liked some of these possessions, some of the livestock that the Amalekites had, they wouldn't destroy the good stuff. They'd just save that for the people. And because the people didn't want Agag to be killed, they would let Agag live. And so Samuel confronts Saul again about that. And Saul gives a very similar response. Uh, skip over to verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because, and listen to this, I feared the people and listened to their voice. I transgressed the Lord because I feared the people. He feared rejection. What if the people don't agree with me? What if I have to take a stand that's unpopular? You see, he feared the people, listened to their voice, and because of that, he had sinned. Not only did he transgress the Lord's commandment, but he was not allowed to keep the kingdom. God said that he would send a man after his own heart, and David would become the next king of Israel. See, Saul was afraid of the people's rejection more than he was of God's commands. And we see that thread in Saul's life, and we even see that carried over in the lives of the Pharisees. Do you remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus approaches Jesus? That's the setting for John 3.16, a verse that many of us have memorized. But at the very beginning of that chapter, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus in verse 2, we find out that he did it, but he did it under the cover of night. Now, we're not sure exactly why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. It, it could be that he wanted a longer conversation with him where they wouldn't be interrupted. Or it could be that he didn't want anyone to see him discussing Jesus' teaching with him. Maybe he didn't want to risk his reputation. 
And when, Jesus, when Nicodemus tells Jesus that they know he's from God, he doesn't say, I know you are a teacher from God. He says, we know. I wish we had more specifics on who the we was included in that statement. But it's very possible that more than just Nicodemus were beginning to believe what Jesus said. Maybe more religious leaders were beginning to believe in Jesus. And as we see bared out in John the 12th chapter, maybe it was because they feared the people that they didn't want to come right out and admit it. That they didn't want to confess Jesus' name. So we've got a thread all going all the way from the New Testament, uh, all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Let's see what Jesus has to say about rejection. Jesus does not say that rejection is a possibility. He does not say that rejection is a probability. When he is talking to his disciples before he's crucified, he says that rejection is something they can be assured will happen. Not a possibility, not a probability, it's a certainty. Flip over, if you will, to John chapter 15 and John chapter 16. As Jesus is addressing his followers, we see beginning in verse 18 of John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And as we skip on down into chapter 16 and verse 2, he says, they will make you outcasts from the That was the fate that the Pharisees wanted to avoid at all costs. They will make you outcasts. They will reject you. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. Not only did Jesus promise they would be cast out of the synagogue, he promised that they would be killed and the people who killed them would think they were doing the right thing. And as we read the book of Acts, we see that prophecy fulfilled. We read about Paul being stoned, left for dead, beaten several times. We see the apostles trying to spread God's word and suffering persecution. We understand that rejection is not a possibility. It's a certainty. And while we might not face the same kind of persecution today, if we are Christians, if we're more concerned with God's commandments than anything else, that will make us take some stands that are unpopular. That will make us say some things and believe some things that might not be popular. This morning, we studied a message from God's Word that might not be popular with our society. But as Christians, we'll end up taking stands that won't make us very popular, where we'll face some rejection. Did you know that if you've lived a Christian life, there will be people who reject you for no other reason than you're a Christian. You won't have done anything wrong, but you'll receive some rejection. It won't feel good. And I know that the persecution the apostles faced wasn't physically pleasurable at all, but it was the knowledge that belief in Jesus, that faith in Jesus, would give them an eternal reward that made them listen to God's commands rather than men's rejection. And so that's one side of the coin. It's easy for us to fear men's rejection rather than God's commands. Let's look at the flip side of that. It might not be that we're so afraid of the rejection of men. It might be that we're just seeking the approval of men. In the verse we read from John chapter 12, in verse 43, when John said they loved the praise of men, uh, the word there doesn't indicate just a kind of acceptance like you and I would think of a regular old acceptance. That word indicates a praise or a glory. Uh, The Greek word there, doxa, indicates glory. They didn't just want to be accepted. They didn't just want to be friends with the people of the world. They wanted to be glorified. They wanted to be... In fact, that's why Jesus was so threatening. Remember, because he taught as one who had authority. The authority meant power. The authority meant they'd be praised and glorified. And when Jesus started teaching as one who had authority, that became very threatening to them. You see, that's what they cared about. 
They wanted to be glorified by men. When we look at Saul's example, as he continues his reign in the Old Testament, if you would flip back with me to 1 Samuel. This time, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. We see a song that made Saul insanely jealous. After David's military exploits had made him well known, we see in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7, that women were singing as they played musical instruments, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? See, at this point, Saul knew that he had made a mistake. He knew that God was not going to allow the kingdom to continue in his line. And then he hears the people approving of David more than they approve of him. And in his mind, that was the indicator that David was going to take the kingdom. Going to take it from you. From that point onward, he sought to kill David. He became insanely jealous because the people's allegiance was to David and not to him. Interestingly enough, in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, as Saul is facing an imminent death, he wants to die in the most graceful way possible. Death will not kill him. And as he falls on his, his own sword, not only is he, is he allowed that death, but he is also paraded around. In fact, we read in that chapter that his head is cut off it was passed around that he was even fastened to a wall and displayed before the Philistines. Isn't it interesting that a man who spent his entire life avoiding humiliation, his entire life avoiding embarrassment, and dies that kind of death? No matter how hard we try, if we are really going to follow God's Word, if we are looking for God's acceptance, we may face some humiliation. You see, the Pharisees in the New Testament had that same kind of concern. They really wanted the approval of men. In fact, in Luke chapter 20, when Jesus would talk to them about the baptism of John, they'd come to Jesus challenging where he received his authority. His question back to them was, well, who gave John's baptism his authority? Was it from God or was it from man? And their response wasn't to look for the right answer. Their response was to look for the answer that would please Whichever answer they gave to incite the people in a certain way, so they said, we do not know. See, they were so afraid of what the people thought. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say that the Pharisees chapter 6 and those they were trying to get the attention of the people. The Pharisees wanted so badly the acceptance of the people. When we look at what Jesus has to say about acceptance, I think it's important for us to realize that even Jesus couldn't please everyone. If you're anything like me, your first instincts in any situation might be that you want to please everyone. If someone comes to you with a problem, you want to somehow make it better. Somehow please everyone. Did you know that Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life, didn't keep everyone happy? In fact, there were people who were very upset with Jesus. We know there was nothing wrong with the way Jesus lived, but people still were upset with Him. That takes the pressure off of you and me. We can't live a life where everyone's happy with us all the time. We can't please everyone. It's impossible. If Jesus couldn't do it, how can I expect to please everyone? Jesus knew that we would face adversity. He knew that we wouldn't be accepted not only by the people in the world, but He knew that even as a church family, sometimes we wouldn't get along. As human beings, we'll let each other down. 
That's why he gives us that New Testament example of how to deal with conflict, of going to the person with whom you have a problem, not necessarily your best friend or, or someone who's uninvolved with it and talking about it, but going to that person with whom you have a conflict, working it out with, it, with them. You see, Jesus expected us not to get along with each other all the time, and that's why he gave us a way of dealing with that conflict. You see, if we're looking for people's acceptance, we're their lives. Listen. The approval of God. So that bears out that principle. They couldn't serve both. They couldn't have it both ways. So they went for men's approval. They worked so hard for men to like them. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't work hard for men to like him. He worked hard to fulfill his mission. Who made a lasting impact? Jesus or the Pharisees? I mean, after all the people who were impressed with the Pharisees passed away, who was there left to impress? What kind of impact could they make? Think of the apostles. The apostles were rejected. They were persecuted. Who made a more lasting impact on the kingdom of God? The apostles or the Pharisees? You see, if I'm searching for popularity or acceptance from people, I'm searching for something that's temporal, that's physical, that's not going to last. How many of you remember the first time you went back and visited your high school campus after you had graduated? You remember in high school, and even those of you who are in high school right now know what I'm talking about, there's that pressure that tries to draw us in of, of being cool and having the best stuff, having the nicest car, making the most money, that pressure to be popular. And we all dealt with it as we were growing up in whatever situation we were in, the pressure to be popular. Do you remember walking back through the halls of your high school? Uh, maybe some of you have never been back. Maybe after you went out, you decided you never wanted to see that place again. But if you came back and walked through the halls of your high school, did it ever, uh, did it ever astonish you that the school was able to make it without you being there? That, that people were able to go on with their lives? I mean, you weren't there anymore, but they were still functioning. You give it five years after you graduate high school, and even the most popular student in your class, if you were to go and ask the students in, in high school five years from now, very few would probably remember that person's name. Even a handful of teachers would be the only ones to remember that class. You take the individual that was the most popular, that everyone liked, that popularity didn't last even a few years. I have yet to hear of a job application where one of their requests is, when you're filling out the job application, were you popular in high school? Were you popular in college? People don't look for that because it doesn't last. Popularity is fleeting. If you take any of the celebrities that have worked so hard to be popular during this century, very few of them from 10 years ago would be recognizable by today's generation. You go back 20 years, even fewer. 30 years, 40 years. You see, we work so hard for the acceptance of people, but it just doesn't last. You know the scary thing about working hard for the acceptance of people is that Jesus said when the Pharisees did that in the Sermon on the Mount, they had received their reward in full. In other words, when they prayed on the street, they might be heard. When they made themselves look pitiful for fasting so people would know they were fasting, that was their reward. That was it. And it wasn't going to last past that momentary time of excitement when you said, someone's looking at me. That was all there was. You see, when we look for Jesus' acceptance, when we look for God's acceptance, we receive an eternal reward. So we have a choice to make tonight. 
We can either look for man's approval or we can look for God's approval. We can be like the Pharisees. He's really done a lot for God. He knows how we could be looking for the praise of men rather than the praise of God. That's a possibility. That's one way we could live, but it's not God's way. The only thing that was keeping those teachers of the law from later on becoming Christians, living faithful lives, was the fact that they cared more about what man thought than what God thought. Tonight, there are a variety of ways that sin can enslave us. But as we focus on this one way, about caring so much about what men think that we forget about what God thinks, we have to make a question, ask ourselves a question, and we have to make a decision. You see, this week, focusing on independence as a country. The Declaration of Independence. A wonderful document that guarantees us physical freedom as Americans. And we don't need to downplay the importance of that. But if freedom is that important for us, physical freedom, how much more important is spiritual freedom? How much more important is an ancient document that can lead us to the truth Jesus talked about that would make us free? We should be willing to fight for our physical freedom, but we should be willing to fight even harder and longer for spiritual freedom. For the freedom that Jesus talked about in John chapter 8, the freedom that's available to every one of us. Jesus said that His words were truth. And if you abided in His words, you would be a disciple. And as we think about what it means to be a follower of Christ tonight, we know that if we abide in, in God's Word, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, when we submit our, wills to, our will to His, a process that begins in faith, it ends in submitting our will to God's, putting Him on in baptism, and walking a faithful life with Him. If we just do that, that will lead us to spiritual freedom, greater than any physical freedom we can ever imagine. If you want to make that decision today, if you want to decide to follow Jesus out of spiritual slavery, out of an end to spiritual inheritance, an eternal inheritance, an independence from sin and a dependence on God, if you want to make that decision, please do that tonight as we stand and sing a song together.